Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Multnomah County Board of Commissioners Board Briefing. Commissioner Jesse Beeson is excused. Audience members, I want to start by asking you to please silence your electronic devices. Today's meeting is a hybrid board meeting. Some presenters and guests will appear in person and some will appear virtually. For those presenting virtually, please mute your mic when not speaking. When presenting, make sure to unmute your mic and turn on your camera. For all presenters, please state your name for the record before speaking or responding to questions. Today's first briefing is on the frequent user system engagement. Um, so I wanna welcome that. We will get started in just a second. Um, I appreciate um, having today's briefing because of how important this work is to building the response that our community needs. This coordinated approach is providing specific interventions that not only creates flow through in, but also that will help us build a collaborative on-ramp to Multnomah County's best intervention, which is permanent supportive housing. I appreciate today's presenters for taking the time to be here and help us understand more, not only about this multi-stakeholder partnership, but especially about the increased support that this will provide to the people who need it the most. With that, I'm happy to welcome up our group of pre presenters to the dais this morning. Good morning, who's kicking us off today? Hey, Lori, good morning. Okay. Well, I wanted to start by thanking, for for your, uh, thanking you for having us here today. I'm Lori Kelly. I'm the Planning and Evaluation Manager for the Joint Office, and I'm gonna take a moment and introduce everyone on our very large team, um, starting with Alyssa. Hi, my name's Alyssa Plesser. I use she and her pronouns. I'm the Continuum of Care Program Specialist Senior for the Joint Office, as well as the FUSE Project Manager. And I'll pass it to Christina. Hello, I'm Christina Goodman. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm a Permanent Supported Housing Team at the Joint Office. We're gonna pass it to some virtual folks. Uh, Tiffany. Okay, has Joe, Joseph Carr joined the meeting virtually? No. Okay. Ray? Okay. Um, hi everybody, my name is Ray Trada. I use they, them pronouns and I'm with CSH Corporation for Supportive Housing. And my colleague Ian Costello might be online. Ian, are you here? I there may be. Try and contact them via. Okay, thanks. Yeah, there may be an issue with, yeah, with the Zoom. that piece, but thanks, thanks for having us. And I'm Graham Bolden. I use he, him pronouns. I'm the Chief Quality Officer with Health Share of Oregon Coordinated Care Organization. Thanks for having us today. Okay. Well, today we'll be presenting on an exciting program that's funded by Supportive Housing Services Dollar. This is a briefing in response to a budget note. Um, to give you a preview of what we'll be sharing, uh, we should have slides. <laughs> I'm actually going to wait for those. I can give you a preview as we wait for the slides. Um, we'll be sharing information about the model, the history, and what our current programming will look like. We'll share progress towards data sharing and future possibilities that this holds, and speak a little bit about the challenges as well as some of the opportunities we chose to pursue in interest of future programming and scalability. 
We've provided a detailed slide deck to allow for in-depth discussion to follow, but we won't be spending a lot of time on the slides today because we want to allow for ample discussion and Q&A. We're happy to answer any questions that are needed, but we will try to move quickly through our slides and do ask that um, we wait for most questions to the end so we can really have a good discussion. And then once our slides pop up, here is a run of show, I will be handing this off to Ray. Awesome, thank you. So again, I'm just speaking on behalf of CSH, again, Corporation for Supportive Housing. We're a national nonprofit located in New York. We work in all things supportive housing. I think a lot of you know CSH. Um, so I'm just gonna present the FUSE model. Again, um, we are national experts, quote unquote, in the work, and we you know, really just like to leverage expertise in communities and support um, kind of innovative partnerships to, to lead to, to better serving the, the folks that we uh, work with. So FUSE, uh, Frequent User System Engagement, um, is uh, basically just one additional way to identify people for supportive housing. So it's not too complicated um, and we'll, we'll describe it, but again, I wanted to repeat, it's just one additional way to identify those who would benefit from supportive housing. And the reason we do this is because FUSE is all about breaking cycles. We know um, when we're working with um, individuals who are facing system, systematic um, barriers that they are cycling between, as it says on the slide here, frequent encounters with um, different acute care settings, emergency department, jails, shelters, et cetera. This is costly to the community and um, leads to poor outcomes for individuals and poor outcomes for the systems. We also like to underscore that um, those who are cycling, it is not their individual fault. Um, we see that as a system failure. So how, as systems, can we respond in um, more uh, person-centered ways that will better serve the individuals we work with? Um, and again, supportive housing, for those who don't know, is housing with services. So individuals who would benefit from uh, permanent supportive housing uh, would not sustain their housing without services and would not sustain services without housing. You can go to the next slide. Awesome, so who are frequent users? Um, again, frequent users is just um, one way of identifying, again, those who are, uh, who are using costly uh, interventions in a not so, uh, not so aligned way. So FUSE is all about having uh, a catalyst for system change. So here in Portland, here in Multnomah County, the FUSE effort is, is involving these three systems that you see up here on the screen, justice involved, healthcare, and housing, which is a great collaboration. Um, one piece to note when we, um, when we look at frequent use is that each of these systems collect their own data and use their own language, have their own outcomes. So FUSE is one way to see, okay, when we all come, to, to get, come together at the table, what does our data say about the people that we're serving in common? Um, how can we do things differently? One piece of note here on the second bullet, often lack chronicity status. So in the housing and homeless system, one way of identifying individuals for supportive housing and other intensive interventions is to look at duration of homelessness or housing instability. So one of the things we find with FUSE in most communities is that we're looking at these populations that might otherwise fall through the cracks because they might lack that chronicity status because of this revolving door of cycling through institutions. So FUSE is one awesome way, right, to kind of like um, look at the bottleneck and um, serve those who um, are cycling, again, through costly systems. Um, I think, yes, you can go ahead and go to the next slide. 
All right, so the FUSE roadmap. Again, um, just of note, so FUSE is implemented across the country. Um, CSH oversees this um, and is, is proud to see this in more than 40 communities at this point, serving many different people through permanent supportive housing. There's no one way to do FUSE. There's no one right answer. Every community takes it um, as their own approach, um, but there is somewhat of a um, kind of overlapping themes that we're gonna see in each of the processes. So we like to talk about the FUSE work in about three buckets, which you'll see up here on the screen. The first one is planning and cross-systems work. So again, um, this is where we have our systems, which in this community is three systems, homelessness, housing, health, and justice. They get to define who they are serving and who would most benefit from this intervention. Um, they identify existing resources and services, and then they get their data to talk to one another to identify who will um, be best um, uh, who is best to utilize this program. Number two is the implementation phase, which Multnomah County is approaching. Um, frequent users are selected, of course, and then connected to housing with services. And then this is the piece that's exciting for a community where you get to study your intervention, right? Portland is not... Um, a stranger to supportive housing, which is great. You've been one of the early adopters, which is awesome. So we have a lot of evidence or a lot of, uh, yeah, evidence base about supportive housing in the community, and we can always improve it, right? Who are we not serving? Who's being excluded? What interventions need to happen? So that's where that, that measure the results happens um, in, in coordination with the systems who are willing to make changes to better serve those who are we are focusing on. And then that number three, take it to scale, right? As, as soon as we learn more information, we can, um, um, amplify these efforts and again better serve those who need uh, supportive housing we can go to the next slide looks like we've got our virtual issue fixed but we'll have those folks um, introduce themselves when when we're finished here um, so locally there's been fused groundwork taking place um, over the last several years um, building off of the housing is health initiative from 2016 the regional supportive housing impact fund scope work Kaiser Met Kaiser's Metro 300 pilot and various ongoing partnerships with health share and care Oregon um, there are also many folks in this space who have been involved with our local FUSE work since 2018, including Commissioner Myron, who's been a champion of FUSE, uh, Graham, and CSH. Um, between 2018 and 2020, the Sheriff's Office, the Local Public Safety Coordinating Council, the Health Department, Health Share of Oregon, and Joe's participated in a FUSE-sponsored analysis. So while well, we just heard the roadmap is sort of FUSE programming and then analysis, for FUSE 1.0, we sort of reversed that, um, um, but it was useful, and we did the analysis first, um, but this was useful in demonstrating utilization. Um, and this analysis compared data from homeless service, healthcare, and public safety systems to identify individuals who are most frequently engaged in all three systems um, and to assess, among other things, how their, quote, utilization of these systems changed based on whether or not they were in um, permanent supportive housing. Just like a little spoiler alert, <laughs> supportive housing reduced crisis response, jail bookings, and public costs for individuals who frequently cycled through the justice and emergency health systems. And what the study also showed was that there was a need to provide more intensive, culturally specific, and individualized services for um, those adults who cross systems. We can go to the next slide. Uh, here we've provided a short summary of the main findings of the FUSE 1.0 report, but again, most importantly, supportive housing reduces adverse system interactions and the need for high system utilization. Uh, Lori will now talk about the main goals for FUSE 2.0. Next slide, please. 
So FUSE 2.0 takes the model further, moving it from um, a study to programming, um, using what we learned from 1.0 to turn analysis into programming and process improvement. We do this by creating an updated list that also includes data sharing agreements that can be added upon and augmented to allow for future multi-sector projects and ongoing collaboration. Program and data parameters for the list were selected and co with collaborating with CSH, HealthShare, and multiple stakeholders across the county, as well as external stakeholders. We will pilot a PSH program, a locally funded local long-term rental subsidy and ongoing wraparound support services to ensure housing stability, specifically procured to serve the needs of a population we already understand through past analysis that, is that includes things like increased behavioral health supports and other service connections. And due to the pilot nature, we can evaluate the efficacy of the program in multiple arenas, health outcomes, interaction with criminal justice, and housing stability to create scalable system change that understands impacts in a more holistic way. And finally, we, begin to, we continue to build on the partnerships and lived experiences to design and evaluate programming. Next slide. And as you can see, we had many partners in this, um, in this process. Next slide. Yeah, so the, um, I was just speak briefly about the data and our progress um, in the role of data is has a multitude of roles in the FUSE process. Um, it's both about better understanding our systems and for programming purposes. So the data team has made a lot of significant strides in this project that both positively impact the FUSE program itself, but are also an avenue towards larger systems change, which is the ultimate goal of FUSE. A major highlight of the work already completed is the data sharing agreement with HealthShare of Oregon. We executed a new MOU between HealthShare and Multnomah County that allows first for the continuous, continuous data sharing between the entities instead of one time only, which has been utilized in the past but requires an intensive amount of work and resources. Um, also the ability to share PII, which we have not been able to do before, and the ability to expand on data elements and authorize uses for future projects without having to renegotiate a new data sharing agreement, which will save future data sharing projects outside of FUSE um, a significant amount of time. Other, uh, other things that we've completed are listed here on the slide, but we can go to the next one. We have several critical parts of the data process currently in progress. So for example, as part of the data matching process, we need to define who a frequent user is. For each community, this definition is different and depends heavily on local context and service usage. Our team has chosen to model our definition of frequent user after the Philadelphia High Five method, which looks at the top 20% of utilizers from all three systems, and then an overall top 20%. We're still tweaking the criminal justice definition of utilizer, um, but the definition for the other systems include homelessness, um, the SHS expanded definition of chronically homeless, otherwise known as population A, for health, three or more emergency department visits, and or two or more medical, inpatient medical admits, <clears throat> and then for criminal justice, uh, 10 or more jail bookings, while we're also looking at length of time, length of stay in jail where the top 20% would be longer than 14 days. Individuals on the match list will meet all three of these criteria areas. Next slide. 
Uh, as I said earlier, Fuse data is not just for programming, but also for systems analysis, and we will be able to do a lot of further data analyses with the Fuse match list that will give us insight into both who the Fuse population is, but also understanding system interactions better, um, and some examples of future analyses that are planned are listed here on this slide. Next slide, please. On the programming side, we've completed the program design and procurement process for providers, um, and additional details about the NOFA process, the notice of funding, availability process, and the selection of providers are listed here. Next slide. The defining elements of the program design include regional long-term rent assistance vouchers, uh, outreach and housing navigation, tenancy support services, behavioral health and or substance use treatment services, which include in-house support um, and connection to intensive services as needed. Um, Multi-provider collaboration and partnerships with health systems and Medicaid, as well as connection to community and mainstream resources. This program is funded at a higher level than other PSH programs at a per participant cost uh, and is intended to utilize other funding in the healthcare system when people are handed to healthcare providers as needed. Next slide. <clears throat> we are actively working with the providers on contract and collaborative budget finalization and an MOU between the selected providers to ensure a clear and positive partnership as well as an in-person orientation with providers and community partners to again build that connection collaboration and ensure warm handoffs are provided. Um, the program will then move to the outreach and lease up phase. I'm going to pass it to Larry to briefly talk about our evaluation. Absolutely. So we'll be working with CSH to create uh, to create a program evaluation. One nice thing about it, uh, this is by baking in the evaluation metrics and tracking a small set of individuals through multiple systems, we're able to evaluate the impact of our programming in health, housing, and criminal justice metrics, um, and be able to look at how we might do that in a larger population. And with that, I will pass it off to Graham. Next slide, please. And one more. Thank you. So I'm going to speak a little bit about some of the system challenges, especially around data sharing. Um, I think this work is fundamentally about breaking down silos between really large systems that are um, serving our community on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think it's really important to point out that our systems in their current structure, especially around information sharing, um, are not designed to really talk to each other. There's a lot of in-person connections that need to happen across, say, the health system, the criminal justice system, and the housing system in order to even understand who the same individuals are that we're trying to serve. Um, so getting them to a place where they actually talk to each other in a meaningful and bi-directional way, um, especially with the additional challenges of HIPAA, um, HMIS structure, that's the housing management information system, um, and then designing systems differently to actually effectively talk to one another is really um, sort of the foundation of this work. And in both iterations of Fuse, I was lucky enough to be part of Fuse 1.0. So much of that was about hand culling the information. And that first version did a really great analysis of the cross-system overlap, but it was all with de-identified um, de information. So it was basically looking at individuals in each system, really with only one system being able to look at that, who, who the actual individuals were there, um, and then sort of sharing out the analysis. And that catalyzed a whole lot of activity, certainly within HealthShare of Oregon. This version, as Alyssa mentioned, is using identified information under really a novel 
data sharing agreement that's going to get those systems to be able to build the pathways to talk to one another in a different way. Um, I, I can speak for a lot of the conversations HealthShare is in around housing and the homeless system across all three counties. The work that we're doing here both really can fundamentally shift the way that the systems work together in Multnomah County, but also really serves as a catalyst and a template for doing this work in other areas. So in a lot of ways, it's very novel, um, particularly the way of health systems starting to understand the um, impact and really um, critical nature that housing plays in health outcomes and the need to coordinate better across those systems as being um, really fundamental to the mission of healthcare in and of itself and to CCOs. So there's not really a perfect template for how to do this and so developing a new way of doing that across the systems has been part of um, a pretty challenging amount of work uh, in, this, in this program. Next slide. And I'll just talk a bit about the programming piece. So during the programming phase uh, at the project, CSH, myself, and other members of the program design team, we held listening sessions with housing, health, and behavioral health providers and people with lived experience to help inform the program design. When we spoke with providers, we heard several pieces of feedback that informed the program design. Um, the first was that the connection between outreach and housing is very important and well into lease up to maintain the continuity of relationships. And we heard this from people with lived experience as well. We also heard the importance of strong partnerships and warm handoffs between providers and the desire for funders to support the building of partnerships between CBOs um, rather than relying on CBOs to come to the table with their own partnerships, particularly in the mostly short amount of time um, that, that funders request a NOFA response. We also heard that this population will need flexibility and the funding needs to match that flexibility in the way the services are funded. And finally, providers and jurisdictional partners noted that they would prefer more say in service delivery model, including what elements of the service delivery model they were able to apply for, noting that not every organization can do it all. Um, and so this led to the FUSE-NOFA, led the FUSE-NOFA to break apart the essential functions of the program so that organizations could apply for one or more components that they felt best equipped to take on. Um, so the NOFA allowed providers to apply for one, two, or all three of the essential service components and the offer that the joint office would support partnership and matchmaking on the back end. Um, in addition, we requested that CSH, uh, as an objective third-party subject matter expert on FUSE, um, do interviews with the top candidates to really hone in on the ability of these providers to serve this population. Um, this extended the allocation process a bit, but we were able to learn through the interviews that interviews are, in fact, a best practice um, for NOFA allocation processes, and we were able to learn um, a lot about the providers and their experience and abilities that weren't just written down on paper. And I'll just pass it to Lori to round us out about opportunities um, and future alignment. Absolutely, next slide. So as mentioned, FUSE is bigger than the sum of its parts. It's exciting both for the programming it's producing, but also for the potential it holds for the future. Um, everything from future collaborations with healthcare, housing, and criminal justice to working with HealthShare. HealthShare was explicit about their desire to use this work to create a working model to continue a collaboration and create shared data sets for programming and evaluation. We can also evolve coordinated entry with this. 
coordinated entry currently creates a list that prioritizes people for HUD PSH. But the data we have can be used in many ways to prioritize for many programs, especially with assist, uh, additional system data. And then also data sharing agreements reflect the intention and can be used to explore ways we could look at things like the new Medicaid 1115 waiver or improved um, system navigation to understand the needs of medically vulnerable populations or those with intensive behavioral health needs. There's a lot of opportunity here um, to begin, begin to think of things in a more holistic way and to move beyond simple housing continuum data services. Yeah. And with that. We are open for questions. <laughs> yeah, if we could do introductions for the folks online, um, and we'll start with folks from the health department. Tiffany? Oh, she's not on mute. Yeah. I don't think your mic is working, Tiffany. <laughs> it might help if you um, log out and log back on. Can you hear me, Tiffany? Unfortunately, we're not able to hear you. Um, do you want to try logging off and logging back on? Okay, thank you. Okay, then we can move to Joe Carr. Is our speakers on? Our, our, our speaker should be on. It's on yeah. mute. Everybody's off mute. So it's something is wrong with our system. On our side? Yeah, it works on my my meeting, but it just doesn't work on. Right. Our system. Well, we got close to introducing the people. <laughs> um, I think we can probably use the audio from my computer. Um, oh, no, we can't. Okay. While we're waiting for that, let's go ahead and move on to questions because we do have two agenda items today, um, and I want to make sure we have time for folks to ask their questions. Um, so I'll start with Commissioner Myron. Thank you. Um, thanks to all of you for being here and uh, for the presentation. I was the one who sponsored the budget note um, requesting this briefing and um, uh, I've worked with all of you. Uh, and um, having um, really uh, led an effort to create a, a system identifying frequent users of emergency departments across our state that's been implemented in all ERs across the state um, and uh, to allow for coordinated care and serving our most vulnerable populations that then expanded into other practice areas, case management, social work, et cetera. This um, has a, uh, uh, this, I'm very passionate about this and have a deep connection to it and had co-sponsored the effort to bring FUSE here, um, whenever it was, several years ago, and do that initial study. And so that obviously provided uh, really crucial information um, that can be used to identify people who are frequent users of multiple systems at the, often the crisis level uh, where people cycle through and we each know those frequent users but identifying that nexus is key for people who use all those systems most frequently. 
Um, and uh, having done that work extensively for years and dived into it, and uh, I do have questions, some of which um, get a little bit into the weeds, and I uh, just want to brace you. And I, I think that you know, the beauty is I, we're all on the same page. I mean, we all want the same things. We all want to serve people who are most vulnerable in our community and get them what they need to break those cycles and get onto a different path. Um, and uh, it's not gonna be in any particular order, um, but one question I had um, talking about the different, um, uh, the, the populations or the, who's gonna be the inclusion criteria, I guess. And you mentioned, I, I heard chronic homelessness mentioned, um, and was that, you know, the population A, or however that's defined through the supportive housing services measure, is that accurate as one of the criteria? Yeah, it is. Sure. Um, we chose it, it. We didn't use the HUD definition for chronic homelessness for all the reasons that were described in the presentation. We did use population A as the overall arching one with um, with the expanded definition of allowing for um, interactions with institutional settings and so forth and lack of um, uh, month over month chronicity in order to avoid some of the issues that we've heard described in, in the fused population model. Okay, thank you. I, that's what I wanted to, to clarify. That's That's great, thank you. Um, I also know that um, though the um, process of getting to a pilot was uh, delayed by years um, and finally implemented, I think the final budget, there was money was allocated in the former chair's last um, year. I'm not sure where the money went. Um, I'm not sure if that was rolled over. I know that there were a lot of different um, different starts to the project, and then it, I'm not sure where it went. There was a NOFA, I think, that went out that I don't know if it got any responses previously. I'm just curious about any of that. It's been a couple of years since I first started talking to a very different cast of people about um, Fuse, and a couple of you have been here the whole time. Um, but I'm just curious, you know, what, I didn't hear anything about the funding, the cost, the, any of, of that aspect, or the history, how we got sort of to this place, because it's not been, it, it sounds like we're just kind of starting, but there's a lot that has happened with a lot of money that I'm not sure where it went or what's what's happened there. Absolutely, and that's kind of a complicated answer, so I'll, I'll get out into pieces. <laughs> and we can talk about it later, so, too. So but I, I, just I don't have the exact answer it. of what happened prior to us taking this on, but I definitely will get you a, a history and any kind of expenses that we can. We'll get it for the whole group okay. so they can understand. Um, I can guarantee you that we haven't given you know money to groups that are not doing the programming, but um, but I will I, but I will let you have that. Um, I'm going to let you, so when we handed it off to Alyssa, which was around about a year ago, I would say, one year ago, yeah. Exactly. Um, I will let her speak to the exact timeline, and I think Graham spoke a little to what some of the pauses were on that timeline, um, but um, if you wanted to jump in and describe some of the things that sort of moved you towards the timeline you were on. Sure, yeah, so I think we did release ANOFA um, in... First part of May. 
the first part of May. <laughs> um, thanks. And we were able to procure providers from that NOFA that we're moving forward with. Um, so that process is moving forward and we're in contract negotiations. And again, this we're doing this new sort of matchmaking piece. And so we're really working to ensure that the providers are working together on a collaborative budget um, and on an MOU. So that programming allocation will move forward um, as well as the, the money that's part of the package for the ARLA vouchers, um, the regional long-term rent assistance vouchers. I will say the allocation period was longer than we wanted it to be. Um, one, because we wanted to do these listening sessions uh, with folks with lived experience and with providers. Um, and then also because of this new essentially new funding model that we were trying out, which is the applying for different elements. It takes longer to then evaluate folks, different evaluation processes. And then, you know, this this population, as all of our populations, deserve, you know, the best services that we can possibly offer. And so we did an extra level of vetting with those interviews um, that CSH did. Um, and so, again, that extended sort of the timeline of the NOFA process. Um, as Lori said, I can't really speak to like a previous NOFO that was submitted. This is the only one that I'm aware of that was submitted for or was let out for programming, um, but we did find providers through it. Okay. I did want to speak to the extended timeline did also involve what was definitely longer than we wanted to spend trying to come to a data sharing agreement. Um, in the end, I think we had a couple of opportunities where we could have come to something maybe a slightly quicker, not much quicker, but we but it would have been um, a one-off that wouldn't have allowed us for ongoing and iterative data sharing. And I think everybody um, in the group um, didn't want to come to something that we couldn't just use for other purposes yeah. right away. So yeah. it was a system building choice to make it a little bit slower to move towards that kind of system building. Yeah, no, I definitely having a data sharing agreement that can be used uh, over time is, is, is huge. That's a huge achievement and I'm really, uh, congratulations on that. Um, and um, I guess one of, it, what is what is the amount how much or i didn't hear anything about how many people how much it's going to cost um sure um so we ended up yes yes thank you um after shifting money over to home forward to pay for the long-term rent assistance we were left with about nine hundred and five thousand dollars for a services budget and that will serve 40 participants um, and cover all of the FTE and client assistance and supportive services. So I, I think this is the thing that I'd mentioned before. And again, I know we're, we, are, we are all sharing the same goals. And so this is, my comments are really toward furtherance of that. Um, I don't think this model or that amount of money is going to come near to serving the people with the services they need or um, going to be uh, effective in reaching the goals that we all want to achieve. And I just even dividing into service elements and having different organizations and people serving uh, the folks who need to be served. Um, what what most people that I, I've spoken with and just my experience caring for people who are houseless um, is that the key issue, the key element is relationship. 
and not having multiple people cycling or being responsible for different things. One of the most successful models I think we have at the county that I, I don't hear enough about, I would love to have a briefing on this, is Tri-County 911. And also efforts that I've come across throughout the country and in Oregon and at Kaiser, frankly, but groups that are responsible for coordinating and being the person for the individuals going through the system. And I feel that we're actually doing what it sounds like is the opposite here. And having multiple organizations do this instead of like the one ring to rule them all or whatever, the, the person who is each person's person, um, following them or intensively knowing each individual who's in that system, is there is there anything like that? How, who's coordinating? Like how is this, it doesn't make sense to me, so maybe that's, my question is, how are you accounting for that? Or did I miss something there actually is that entity that is bringing it together? And I will um, let you answer the question. I just want to keep it uh, time checked to make sure. Okay. So um, so this can be, and then I know that they're happy to talk with you offline. I just want to make sure everybody yep. has a chance to ask their questions. Yeah, absolutely. So just on the funding piece, um, we also have chosen a provider that's gearing up to bill Medicaid for services so that we can bring in more funding that way and through the health care. So this model of allowing folks to apply for the services that they fit best is to create that sort of group of folks that will work intimately together. And that's why we're also working on an MOU with the providers and the, the providers we've chosen also work together already. And so they have, they're used to sort of this sharing of participants uh, in a space and doing care coordination. Um, and so it's not going to be like passing around a participant. It is gonna be really a group of folks from different organizations based on their expertise to serve the participants and to follow them through the program. Can I just, just to respond, to, thanks for the clarification. Um, a couple of uh, red flags for me are, number one, Medicaid. Relying on Medicaid for this is gonna not, not a great, I, I wouldn't suggest doing that. If, we, if Medicaid works out and the state gets its act together and figures out how this funding is gonna work, which isn't gonna happen for at least another year or so. Lori, looks, you look oh, like you're well, like- I wanted to clarify. I realized, I realized that we might have led to a misunderstanding and that's why I wanted to clarify. Um, yeah. When we say Medicaid billing, we, need for, we mean for the continuum of health services that they would likely need to support them, not for the housing piece in particular. The long-term rental assistance is actually covered as part of the contracting oh. and so are the immediate support services and we certainly we're not going to wait for that Medicaid waiver to jump up, but more services that are traditionally um, associated with healthcare, behavioral health and other types of support services that would be in the medical continuum with the understanding that also making sure people are connected to intensive behavioral health services when they need it rather than relying on housing providers who don't always have the you know knowledge base and, and skills that they might have. So I, I did want to be clear about that with the medical. Okay, that, that actually is really helpful. Um, but it raises my concern level even higher because tradition, like the whole reason, Medicaid often doesn't work for this because there are so many restrictions and it like the reason the supportive housing services measure money is so incredible and can be used for this kind of situation is because it's unrestricted and 
you're not tethered to the hoops that have to be jumped through. You can actually do what's right for the person because sometimes the Medicaid restrictions don't allow that. So this concerns me that it, it sounds like we're, and the coordination, the way it was described, it concerns me that this is exactly, you said all these people have worked together, they're used to coordinating. This is kind of the thing that, this is what is done already. This does not sound innovative to me or really optimizing use of those funds that we okay. have. So Thank that's you. it. Anyway, look forward to talking more about it. Okay, Commissioner Broom Edwards. Thanks for the presentation this morning. Um, I'm gonna really up level since um, I wasn't here um, last year when the um, pilot was first uh, started. Um, but I, I, will, I will say that um, when I'm out uh, talking to first responders, um, to healthcare professionals, um, they all identified the need to a, for a focused approach to frequent users, so I'm really glad to see um, this work advancing. Um, as you move out of the pilot stage, um, I would like to know when we're going to have um, some really uh, hard numbers on that subset of uh, frequent users um, so that we can understand um, first, um, who we're like the, the number and who we're trying to serve, um, and then also so that we can effectively evaluate whether um, we're getting the, the the right participant outcomes um, that we're looking for and a reduction in the use. So, I'm interested in uh, when we'll get that um, sort of move to that overarching number and sort of moving out of the pilot stage. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, the data from HMIS is currently at HealthShare <laughs> right now, um, and we ex they're doing the match um, on the HealthShare side, and then we'll send it back to the joint office where um, we will have data analysts doing the final match with the criminal justice system. HealthShare has said that they're gonna get the data back to us uh, mid-November, and then we will immediately move into matching the criminal justice data, and so I would anticipate you know, four to eight weeks for the final match list where we will, um, four to eight weeks from mid-November um, to have the final match list, um, and then moving through um, that list and the analyses, including which was listed on the slide, but I didn't speak to an equity analysis, analysis to look at the demographic data um, of this population of the sort of like quote-unquote final list uh, to ensure that we're not uh, just duplicating disparities that already exist in these systems. I did want to mention, too, some of this is longitudinal analysis. You can't have stability until people are stably in housing, so it will be an ongoing analysis. And I think our partners, our data partners, can finally speak, so I didn't know if they have anything else to add around that, around evaluation. Can I just, um, I just want to make sure I um, correctly summarize what you said. I think, and I'm looking at the um, s screen here, the um, transcript, you said four to, four to eight weeks from mid-November. So essentially by year end, we should have all the, the data integrated, the, um, well, sort of the racial equity um, lens applied to that. But that year end, we'd have this, the larger um, data set along with the sort of subset that we're focusing on? That is the goal that we are on target for right now, yes. Great. Um, and then I'm just also gonna focus on the evaluation because I look at sort of this, sort of, again, sort of up-leveling up um, of 
how will we know whether this initiative is successful from the um, sort of bigger systems um, standpoint. So you, at the year end, you have this data, and then um, you are developing on this slide relating to evaluation. Um, you're gonna be creating some um, tools for evaluation. Will that then that be brought back to um, the commission of like, here's the data set and here is our evaluation tools so that there's sort of this transparency and accountability um, of whether we're actually making the impact that we um, thought we were gonna make on, in terms of frequent use and also better outcomes for those people who need our systems? Short answer is yes. <laughs> the budget now asks us to return at the three, six, and nine month mark. So we will be coming back to give more detailed updates as we progress. Uh, I think Ian um, from CSH is also able to unmute now and he has been also involved in Fuse 1.0 and really instrumental in this measures inventory that we've created. So I wanna just give um, Ian a chance to introduce himself um, briefly. Yeah. No. <laughs> Sorry, Ian, the audio is still not working. Can um, Ian call in on the phone? Um, yeah, I'll get his okay. phone. Can I? I'll also say, like, um, I think I got a yes to okay. back. Yeah. And that the end of the year, so um, I'm good and you can follow up later. That's sure. We're short on time. Yeah, if you don't mind, I'd love to add one thing. So. Part of where this data sharing arrangement ends up is that actually you're gonna have two systems that are able to do analysis on the information. So there'll be a data set at the joint office that will be combining the criminal justice and the housing and the health data. Also HealthShare will immediately have information pertaining to folks who are in the HMIS system. And we're gonna be using that. Yes, the intent of this project is to land on a list of individuals who are appropriate for the housing programs under FUSE. But we're gonna be using that almost immediately for a number of initiatives that we have related to like, um, uh, there's a central city task force happening. We are doing what's called, what we're calling an ecosystem analysis where we're overlaying this information with various types of substance use, psychosis information. Uh, so looking at methamphetamine, opioid use, and what does that really mean for different sort of sub segments of the population and how are they using health services? We've never been able to overlay housing uh, or housing status into any healthcare information in any sort of reliable way. So now that that information is sort of packaged in a useful way, it's only a single snapshot, but it's a really large snapshot. We're gonna very quickly be able to identify within this ecosystem analysis that we're doing where there are really huge opportunities for improvement from the health system side and in collaboration with these I hope sort of growing centers for excellence like Commissioner Myron was talking about that are gonna be able to do sort of novel interventions and really do wraparound supports for people in our community. So I think this is enabling really two large system responses to that and yes, that timeline is accurate from one system but also the health system is gonna be moving on it really immediately for a number of housing and health initiatives. Great, I'm excited to see how that's gonna to translate to just changes um, for say first responders, whether it's Portland Street Response or mm -hmm. um, law enforcement, um, who um, we may not all see it, um, or also people in emergency rooms, we may not all see it, um, but they certainly do. And so if we can um, make progress in that area, like I say, not only good for the um, individuals um, who are the frequent users, but also for our entire community. Yeah. Thank you, Commissioner Stegman. And are we still working on the audio issue? Okay. Yeah. 
Commissioner Segman. Thank you, Chair. Uh, well, I think this is really exciting, and I appreciate HealthShare. Uh, we always talk about how our systems don't talk to one another, and while we have a long ways to go, y'all are talking to one another, and I'm actually pretty impressed uh, that you've made such headway uh, between our healthcare data, our criminal justice data, and our homelessness data. I'm not really sure. I would love to learn a little bit more about that, maybe offline, uh, but it sounds like, I mean, that has always been such a major hurdle. Every time we turn around, it's like, well, that's classified information, it, you know. So I'm not sure how you did that, but I think that that is such a significant part of, of this puzzle. So I want to recognize that. Um, I did have some questions. So I, I guess, can you walk me through what does this person look like? So you've identified this person who's been touched by all three systems, and then what? What does success look like? Yeah, so I think success looks like maintaining permanent housing, right? Um, not returning to homeless services or, or the homeless system. Um, we're also looking at decreased jail bookings. So ideally the number would be zero <laughs> jail bookings, um, which we did see in the Fuse.1 analysis. The Fuse 1.0 analysis, I think, gives us a really good um, snapshot of that where I think we saw for folks who did receive a permanent supportive housing intervention that was um, not through FUSE, we saw a significant decrease, um, I think 400 jail bookings, like a decrease for 400 jail bookings. Um, we also, while on the joint office side, we won't be able to evaluate this, but on the health share side, the FUSE 1.0 saw that if folks had ended chronic homelessness with permanent supportive housing or didn't go into chronic homelessness because of permanent supportive housing, that um, there was a $10.2 million savings in the healthcare. So I think that those are the goals, are that we see folks needing to access crisis services less, um, significantly less, um, including emergency departments to department visits it doesn't mean that their utilization of the healthcare system will completely go down, right? We want folks to utilize healthcare system, but in a way that is utilizing constant providers, primary care providers, um, you know, behavioral health providers that they have consistent relationships with versus using the emergency department for crisis. Um, and then obviously, like I said, we wanna see decreased jail bookings um, and folks staying in their housing. Okay, no, that, that makes perfect sense. So you talked about the ARLA. I, I guess, like, talk to me or tell me, I mean, because people are on waiting lists, right? So where's this rental assistance coming from, uh, you know, for, so I'm just kind of like, people are on huge waiting lists, so how are we giving ARLA long-term rental assistance to folks on, in this program? Um. Yeah, so we have um, 40 vouchers set aside for this program specifically, and, and those folks will come from the list, and then they'll be matched with, we have two providers that have been selected to kind of work together. Um, and those two providers have a lot of history doing community engagement, like having presence in like shelter systems and out in like encampments, and so they've really built good relationships with folks in the community. So. The idea is that they'll be able to really wrap around those folks and help them get stable and move into those vouchers. That's awesome. How did you get 40 vouchers? 
<laughs> I mean, you must have carved out this somewhere. Yes, yes. yes. we carved it from the funding source to purchase the vouchers. Okay, great, great. Um, so, so this will be a pilot. Can you kind of like, so it sounds like maybe December, January is when you're, you'll have the data and then you'll be able to identify people and then the pilot, if you can just talk to me about the timeline, like when will the official go light start and, and then when will you evaluate? Yeah, so I think the the, the go light depends a little bit um, on the contracting finalization, but we expect that to be in a similar time frame. Um, and so probably January, we're looking at having this um, in-person sort of two-day orientation for um, the providers and for us to dig into the data altogether, um, amongst other things that CSH will be leading and we can offer more details on that um, separately. And then after that, we'll go into this outreach slash in reach, right, because some folks will be still in the healthcare setting or in a correction setting. Um, and this partnership also with uh, DCJ is really critical because we, um, DCJ has been a critical partner of this and um, especially thinking about the transition services and working with um, parole officers and how that parole officers also a, can be a key piece of that care team. And so they will move into that and evaluation will you know, follow, and um, the plan is both to have is to have continuous evaluation. Um, also, usually at the year mark, right, we will evaluate once the program has started, but we'll also be evaluating throughout and using um, folks with lived experience, providers, and the participants to also provide some qualitative evaluation to see how the program is going as it's implementing throughout the first year, and what changes need to be made. And so it will be continuous evaluation, but the one-year mark will be key. Okay, and who who are the providers? Are they going to be, you know, organizations, you know, homeless service providers is? Yeah, do you wanna? Yeah, we have two providers that both um, are qualified providers with the joint office. We'll be working with East County Housing and with Greater New Hope, who will be providing the behavioral health services. Okay, great. Well, I'm excited. I know things never go as quickly as we would like to, but I think that we have to be really forward thinking and uh, we have to like turn off the flow and you know, especially from the lipstick side, uh, you know, they've been uh, talking about this for a, a long, long time and to see it actually turn into a pilot, uh, I'm really excited about it. So uh, again, HealthShare, thank you for your partnership. That's what it takes is all of us working together in the same direction. Uh, and thank you to the joint office staff. I really appreciate you. I know you all have uh, regular duties and to be taking on a pilot and something that is additional to your everyday duties is a lot, uh, but I think it's worth it. So thank you all. Can I just briefly uh, introduce the folks who weren't able to introduce themselves just so that yes, we know they're here and I just wanna thank them for making the time. We have Ian Costello from CSH, um, who's been really instrumental on the data side. Um, Joe Carr from the health department who has led the data team. Um, and then Tiffany Kingry from health department, but behavioral health department who has co-led the program design team with Christina. So I just wanna give appreciation um, for them and carving out the time as well as the whole FUSE project team. There are many, many, many stakeholders um, and not all of them are here today, but we've they've all played a really instrumental role in driving this forward, and so just uh, deep appreciation for this cross-collaboration.
Thank you for taking the time to do that. And I really apologize um, for those folks who were on the um, on the internet today that we had such technical difficulties. I'm not sure what happened because we normally don't have. Um, I mean, not like we've never had these kind of difficulties before, but um, but usually things are working more smoothly than that. So just appreciate um, all of you being here to to be present for the. Um, the information, even if you weren't able to share your pieces, I think what it does show, though, is that this is really a multidisciplinary work that is happening both internally at Multnomah County, but also with the partners. So I appreciate um, Health, Health Shares partnership with um, um, some of the work that's been happening with the foundations that um, you know helped fund this work initially, and then with CSH as well. Um, I think I remember I think first getting a briefing about this idea of having looking at. Uh, frequent users of our um, of our healthcare systems, of our justice system, and people who are experiencing homelessness, like in the early days of being a um, a commissioner. And so, I just really appreciate all the work that's um, has moved this forward, um, Commissioner Myron. I appreciate your um, your real efforts to make sure that this is something that we are moving forward with at Multnomah County, and we will be getting updates on this. Um, I just had a couple of questions. My first one is. You know, as we're, the conversations that I've been involved in are really looking at, you know, just, just the types of folks, right, who are, who are um, identified with that kind of the overlapping Venn diagram of, of needs and, and access um, of systems. Um, the data that HealthShare is, is putting together is really impressive in that it, it helps focus on just the, um, the complexity and the acuity of the needs of folks on this. So. I'm curious as you're talking, you know, as we're looking at the um, the types of services, the types of um, uh, treatments and, and um, things that people are going to need. How are you? Has that changed since the program has began? As we're looking at, you know, the impacts on people, perhaps because of fentanyl or or, or higher acuity um, behavioral health issues. I would say. Um it's, it's changed across the system, but I think within FUSE sort of ha, has had sort of a narrow scope of trying to, to land on a couple of contracts for 40 individuals being served. So it's been, um, it's, it's working through that sort of tried and true model of looking at whether you can identify folks across all three and then develop programs specific to them. I think HealthShare's interest the whole time has been really in, in participating in the development of more of a continuum of care across all of the different arrays of need. So when we, what we'll find when you look at folks who use a lot of healthcare services is a really wide range of clinical and social needs that may or may not be met by a couple of separate programs. Um, I think that might be part of the evaluation discovery here is that you have folks who are struggling with everything from really significant chronic physical health conditions to significant and very acute current substance use conditions, sometimes an overlap of both all at the same time. And so I think it would be, um, there's sort of that, it's increasing recognition that what you need are actually multiple layers, multiple sort of programs of excellence that can engage with that sort of array of needs and start building a system across both the health and housing systems. So the, the FUSE program itself, I think we've infused that recognition into what the end goal needs to be for these systems to work well together while sort of trying to stay true to what the original ambitions of this particular project and funding are for. I don't know if that, if that answer makes sense, but 
Yeah, no, it's helpful. I mean, the and and we because we are only working with 40 people, we know the needs and the and this actual population, which I'm sure we'll have that data then by the end of the year to see really what what does that actual population look like and how we're able to build up a system that is better able to respond to the needs of all the people mm -hmm. as we're moving through this pilot and taking the learnings from that. So, um, so appreciate all of the work that you all have done on this. Thank you so much for being here today. Again, apologies for the technical difficulties, but um, we know what we will have you um, back in a few months as we. Um, get more of this information, get more of the data, and are able to move this, this work forward. So thank you all very much. Thank you. Appreciate thank you. it. All right. So um, appreciate that um, briefing on FUSE. And um, we are continuing on um, the topic this morning of really looking at how we can best serve people who are at greatest needs in our community with um, a, a conversation that we are going to have now around drop-off crisis and sobering center development. Um, I really appreciate this opportunity to continue the conversation today um, to talk about the crisis services um, and the needs around crisis services here in Multnomah County. Every one of us on this commission has important perspectives to bring to today's discussion that we're going to have, um, not as experts, but as people tasked with policy direction and increasing community voice on this topic. This is also a chance to exchange ideas and learn more about how each of us is framing the issue. The interventions we're talking about today spans very complex systems of care we must invest in to provide people experiencing mental illness and substance use disorders with the resources that they need to live healthier lives. And as we get into this discussion today, I really want to make sure that we are centering them because at the root of any productive conversation around increased sobering capacity, it's about real people who are struggling with inadequate housing and inadequate access to health care. Um, so if you are a person who is unhoused, who has a behavioral health or a mental health crisis, what are the interventions that you need? What is your pathway to health and housing stability? And I think those are the questions that we need to keep asking. Um, but we also know that this conversation is about strategy. Um, with the alignments like we heard about in FUSE just a few minutes ago and um, additional alignments, the connections that we foster and deepen across our systems of care, we know that the greater that those are, the more effective and impactful our systems are going to be and the impact is going to be much greater for the people that we're looking to serve. We also know that our response times will be faster and more efficient and ultimately our entire county, uh, community is going to be stronger. So I want to thank Commissioner Brim Edwards for her collaboration and leadership in this space and I want to turn today's presentation over to you, to your staff and your invited guests. Thank you, Chair. Um, and I really appreciate that uh, frame up and I thought maybe I'd just share just a quick framing for how we're going to do our work over the next several months. Um, so for all of us who were here on September 28th, the commission approved a set of investments including 6.8 million for a 24-7 stabilizing center with emergency detox. And then the chair um, tapped me to lead the planning and design work for the reestablishment of a 24-7 sobering center with a directive that it be ready for the commission to consider as part of the 2024-25 uh, budget cycle. Um, so we're shooting for um, having something no later than March 1st uh, for consideration. And also during our discussion um, of the supportive housing services funds this past summer, sobering services were highlighted by this board, by first responders and the community as a whole as a critical need. We're keenly aware that lack of drop-off sobering services since the closure in 2019 of the, this community's sobering center 
And so I'm really looking forward to um, the discussion this morning really as a way to kick off the work um, and to hear perspectives um, as, as we begin. So why a 24-7 drop-off uh, sobering center? Um, while there remains an ongoing effort to bring more treatment beds online and develop the healthcare and treatment continuum around those needs, we've also heard there remains an unmet public safety need, um, which is, I'm glad we have um, a panel here this morning to also speak to that. Um, it's an unmet safety need around the immediate crisis faced on the street every day by those who are deeply intoxicated by drugs and alcohol. And that's where I really wanna center um, today's discussion. Um, I ask each of the commissioners and chairs to share your perspectives, insights, and concerns early in the design and the planning work. Uh, we welcome you also identifying um, models or approaches that you would like us to consider and evaluate through this process. Um, I've invited two um, law enforcement agencies here today to both provide a quick ground level experience and perspective on the need, and of course to answer any questions from commissioners that may help frame up ideas and inputs as we start this process. I know that the terms used in this environment are important, and we've had that discussion at the dais before, um, and they can be confusing, but my ask this morning is um, for each of us to hear what each other is describing, rather than focusing on the correct terms of sobering versus detox versus destabilization. Um, I'm a lame person, so um, I'm gonna try and focus on the description of what's needed. Um, and I ask all of us to do that. Obviously, we all have different levels of expertise, but um, really to focus on what, what we think we are trying to create um, through this process. Uh, from my perspective, um, it's, sobering is really um, the, the moment of involvement from the first responder for this first 12, 24, or even 48 hours thereafter. Um, and I want to also be clear as we start this process that this is planning and design for a 24-7 sobering center. It's not planning and design for a behavioral health emergency coordinating network, also known as Beacon. So just to be clear, that's uh, what our focus is of this work that um, the chair has um, tapped um, us to, to work on over the next several months. The Sobering Center will connect individuals as needed to other behavioral health services, um, at, but I want to just really be clear what this is and what it what it isn't. Um, and really, the, this focus is on finding um, another option for people in immediate crisis that is not jail, it's not the emergency room, and it's not just leaving people on the street. Um, that we have the ability to actually help those people um, who are in desperate need of something right at that moment. Um, I also want to be clear that um, I'm envisioning this as a place and a facility um, so that the uh, first responders are not having to call around to find a you know what place they're going to, um, whether it be a be at 2 a.m. in the morning or at 2 p.m. in the afternoon, so that it's it's a place and that it is accessible um, and available for first responders and also those in, in crisis. Um, so I'm going to ask our guests to briefly share um, the options that officers currently face and their perspectives about the importance of having a 24/7 uh, sobering center, and then the chair will recognize each of the my colleagues here to provide insights, perspective, recommendations, or or concerns that we can fold into the board's input um, at the earliest stage of the process. Um, also, as indicated earlier in my communications to commissioners, if you want to provide additional materials or other um, things, studies, any, anything you want us to look at, uh, we welcome that as well. Uh, we're really, really start launching the planning and design phase, so you're here at the at the very beginning of that work. 
Um, so now I'd like to ask Eric Zimmerman from my staff, um, who will help facilitate um, and introduce our guests. Um, and I want to thank our guests for coming this morning and taking the time to share with um, us your perspective um, of the work and what the need is. Thank you, Commissioner, and thank you, Chair. Good morning. Um, good morning. My name is Eric Zimmerman, Chief of Staff in District 3 for Commissioner Brim Edwards. Uh, with me, I've got leadership um, from both the Portland Police Bureau and Gresham Police Department. Uh, to my furthest left, Captain Rasmussen, the uh, leader of the Behavioral Health Unit in Gresham. Uh, I've got Craig Dobson, commander in the Portland Police Bureau for Central Precinct, and Rob Simon, the commander of the North Precinct. And behind me is Sergeant uh, Sarah Taylor, one of the daytime first-line supervisors. Um, with that, you know, my role here will really be to facilitate some of our guests and very much in receive mode from the commissioners and note-taking, our whole staff is here. But I wanted to turn it over to Captain Rasmussen to describe first for Gresham um, uh, the options that your officers have when facing the crisis as described. Yeah, definitely. Good morning. Good morning. And, and I want to thank the board on behalf of Chief Goldberg and East County Law Enforcement for um, speaking about this, you know, looking for community solutions to a significant community concern. Uh, that specific concern is what we do for the health and well-being of, in, in the Gresham area, the East County, uh, people who frequent or reside in Gresham uh, or Multnomah County and are struggling with concerning levels of, of substance use, whether it be alcohol or drugs, and what we do with them. Um, Chair, you spoke about it being both uh, substance abuse and mental health, and I'll speak to that briefly. And uh, Commissioner Brim Edwards, you hit three of the main uh, things that our, our patrol officers. So again, I'm John Rasmussen. I'm captain over operations for Gresham. Um, so that means I have behavioral health unit, but I also have all of uh, our street response for patrol uh, that I oversee. Um, when we're dealing with, uh, when we're working with somebody who is intoxicated to a level that's concerning, there's limited options that we can use. Um, we've talked about the sobering center closing, that took away option number one. Um, in that, we also hit the pandemic with the increase in mental health. We hit uh, the passage of Measure 110, where we have seen on the streets uh, more, I would say more drug use, but also more drug use in public, and that's how we're interacting and the community's interacting with them. So with the sobering center gone, we're left with a couple different options. One that the officers try to use is some sort of home or residence that we try to get them, the person back to a place where someone can care for them. Uh, not everybody has that. And uh, those who we can find a home for or residence for, sometimes they're not welcome there. And so we can't just drop them off. Uh, the hospital, uh, ED departments are uh, overwhelmed by us at times, and really over the last couple of years have had to tell us that they're not, a, uh, they don't have the ability or capacity to deal um, and work with patients who are under the influence for a variety of reasons, and I'm sure the ED departments can uh, talk to you about that. There's still a statute uh, in the state of Oregon that would allow us to take somebody to jail if they cannot care for themselves or others. We have used that in the past. I think uh, all officers have agreed that that's not the best option. Um, it sometimes has been a safe option, but it has never been the best option for someone um, who has concerning, concerning levels of intoxication. Um, one of the other options is uh, to do nothing. And I think over the years, that's what you've seen uh, increasingly for a couple of different reasons. And one of them, one of those reasons is when we approach somebody, um, if they're not in the street 
and they're on the sidewalk or something, there's, there's not, there's a letdown in the sense that we have no place to take them. We, we remind them that they don't have a residence they can go to. We cannot take them to the hospital. We cannot take them to a sobering center. And so we're kind of left just chatting with them and, and trying to get them uh, some sort of help, but those help in East, in East County are, are very limited. Um, where I wanna couch this for a minute is on the behavioral health side. Our behavioral health unit is similar to Portland's. We have officers who are a partner with clinicians and my clinicians have spoken to me ever since the onset of our program, their concerns and the difficulty in getting baseline evaluations to determine the mental health status of somebody who's in crisis when they're also under the influence of intoxicants. They, the ED departments won't hold them long enough. Uh, they're not able to hold them long enough to allow a sobering effect so that our clinicians can come back in and get baseline mental health. So what ends up happening is they either uh, are just left to where they're at or we interact with them later and most often that's back in an intoxicated level, still trying to determine what is happening with the mental health in lieu of intoxication or what is separate from the intoxication and uh, that's kind of where we're at in East County, just a, a lack of services and concern for the community members and how we're going to uh, get them the help they need. <coughs> Thank you, Captain Rasmussen. Uh, I want to turn it to Commander Simon next to uh, share from his perspective. I think eventually we'll be sending it to one of his sergeants as well. Uh, thanks, Commissioner, for having us here today. Uh, the opening of a sobering center would benefit both the community and the first response systems in Multnomah County. Uh, now, Could from you mind stating your name for the record? What's that? Could you state your name I'm for the sorry. record? Rob Simon. Uh, the opening of a sobering center uh, would benefit both the community and first response system in Multnomah County. Uh, from a police-specific sp perspective, uh, we recognize this is not a treatment model, but what it is is a non-criminal solution for an acute problem that we're facing. Uh, people on the street who are unable to care for themselves due to intoxicants uh, often are victimizers. They're also victim victimizers and victimized. They're both on both ends of the spectrum. Uh, so there's a, a definite need for a, a non-criminal solution for people who are unable to care for themselves before they become that victimized or victimized. Uh, currently for law enforcement, uh, options are limited as Captain Rasmussen uh, talked about. Uh, we're left to taking people to jail, uh, taking people to a local hospital. We've talked about staffing levels of the ER departments uh, has been addressed or a residence which sometimes they're not welcome to because the state that they left the residents can't bring them back to sometimes in that level of intoxication. Uh, with available ambulances, uh, countywide, often going to what they call level zero, I mean zero ambulances available for the county, it's a stretch on the ambulance system as well, and it's a severe strain on our AMR resources and our AMR partners uh, to try to get ambulances. And when an ambulance is tied up with somebody who may just need a non-criminal route it alleviates the ability for us to have an ambulance for an actual emergency that's needed right that minute. What a detox center or a sobriety center would do, uh, it would alleviate some of those hospital beds being taken up by people who just need a, a dry, sober location uh, and the opportunity to begin a path to a treatment plan uh, in the county. So having a Sobriety Center just makes sort of common sense in that regard from a law enforcement perspective. Great. 
Mayor Dobson, do you want to make some comments while Sergeant Taylor comes up? Or? Okay, first. sounds great. Good morning. Uh, my name is Sarah Taylor, and I work North Precinct Patrol, so I supervise the, the officers that are responding to these calls. We're getting, um, you know, several calls for service on the same person um, and potentially several people with several calls for service uh, over the course of a day. And I think a, a lot of the other things have already been covered as far as our ambulances um, just not being available and for jail not being a good option um, and also for just how busy our hospitals are and how they're not best serving um, people who are intoxicated on the street. Um, so having a place to take these people would, uh, it, it would make the community feel safer. Uh, they, these, peop uh, the, the, these people that are creating the calls for service wouldn't um, kind of be the focus of a police officer's day. Um, and what I remember uh, when we had a sobering center was that uh, there were there was there was a human kind of component um, there there was a hands-on these people um, every time they were greeted at the sobering center um, there was a familiarity uh, they knew their names um, there was an actual human interaction that these people had that they're just not getting um, from us they're familiar with us but we don't have the time to, to spend with them and they're getting things like a sandwich or soup and water, which they're not always getting from us, although our officers um, usually will do that. Um, so there's that human component too. And it's a place where they're just, their physical bodies uh, get a break and a rest um, at some point, even if it's for a short amount of time. And that's uh, really big too, rather than just kind of moving them along and moving them um, around the corner. Uh, so that that's how it could be helpful to us on patrol. Thank you, sir. I'm I'm Craig Dobson. I'm with Central Precinct. Thank you for providing us this time. I'm going to pivot just a little bit and and talk kind of at a higher level of what a sobering center also provides us. We've talked a lot so far this morning, uh, very well about the chronic acute problems, but also because I have the entertainment district in my area. Every weekend, uh, we have individuals who end up in a state where they've had too much to, to drink or have taken some other substance and, and are unable to care for themselves. The sobering center would allow us that opportunity to get those folks to a place that's safe, compassionate, and off the street where they can't be victimized as well. In the summertime, we have up to 30,000 individuals, young, younger individuals in those areas. Uh, in the entertainment district and having an opera or having a place to take them as well as those that we've already discussed so that they have a place where they have compassionate people who that as they come down and are able to then rationally think and, and make good decisions can have those competent discussions about where life is taking them and where their choices are taking them. Those conversations don't happen at jail. Those conversations don't happen at the hospital, unfortunately. And if we play that out, some of those individuals might have a substance abuse problem on the weekends and don't realize it, but having that conversation, when they get to a point that they can have that conversation, maybe we're saving them from the DUI, from the crash, from the domestic violence, 
on top of also giving them a safe place so that they're not victimized in that period of time. And so I, I look at it as, you know, what, what does success look like for us? And it's humanely providing a safe place and location for people to sober, whether it be the person that has chronic issues or the person that this is a one-off on their weekend time. And so I would just submit that as well. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. That concludes everything from this panel, and we're available for questions, uh, but I know that we'll hear from others. Great. Thank you so much, and um, thank you for facilitating that. Thank you all for, for being here to provide the perspective, too, and I do appreciate um, you bringing up the fact that sometimes it is just people who are not the chronic. I think we think about that a lot when we think about sobering, but there's also other needs there. Um, so we'll go to the board for, for questions and to just start the discussion piece um, around that, and um, I'll start with Commissioner Stegman. Thank you, Chair, uh, and thank you, Commissioner Brim Edwards. Oh, and I'm sorry. I just wanted to. So, do you, um, Commissioner Brim Edwards, do you want us to ask questions of the panel at this point and and then engage in the conversation? I don't want I don't want to have you guys have to stay up here for the whole time if it's not necessary because yeah. I know you're very busy. Why don't just looking at the time? Why don't we spend at maximum 10 minutes with questions okay. and then we'll shift to because I want to make sure that everybody has a chance to unfiltered and just to be able to provide their okay. perspective. So why don't we focus on questions to the panelists at this point and then we'll engage in our conversation. Okay, great. Okay. Thank you all for being here. I appreciate it. Um, I had some questions about voluntary versus involuntary and you all talked about like I appreciate the example of like sometimes there are people that are intoxicated it's a Friday night you and this would be a place and, and let me say I mean absolutely I, I, I believe that we need a sobering center but uh, the, the devil's in the details right so I'm trying to figure out um, what population because in my mind I think of people the people that probably need the services probably are not go going to agree <laughs> to the, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong. I think the high acuity folks, uh, like they're not gonna say, yeah, take me to the sobering center. Where I think the people that are not as chronic might be. A am I wrong or can you share with me what your experience is? Yeah, definitely. And he's kind of, and I've been in law enforcement with Gresham for 18 years and we've seen all, all sides. I actually have quite a few stories uh, about people who, I have, I have two gentlemen separately who I wanted to leave at home until they went out and got into the back of my car to go to the sobering center because uh, they wanted help. And it was, I, I tried to leave them there based on the circumstances. Um, and we do uh, rarely, I can't think of a time that I had someone that became combative uh, as far as going to the sobering center. Uh, when we talk to them about what's provided to them um, and the best uh, uh, interests, there, to answer your question, there are voluntaries and then there are police officer holds. And the police officer holds go around, are they unable to take care of themselves or are they harmful to themselves or others? Um, and so we can utilize that, and that's the, the community caretaking statutes is what we have used. It's a non-criminal statute that would allow us to drop them off at the sobering center with all the information that we have to give the sobering center. The sobering centers um, often know the people we are dropping off, and they've worked with them before, and it can be a continuum of care. Right now, we, we take people uh, on police officer's hold. We take them to the emergency department. Uh, if it warrants that level and the, knowing that the emergency department is likely to release them within five 
to 30 minutes and then they're just back on the street because the emergency department is is looking at are they medically stable and are they actively suicidal going to harm themselves or, or homicidal and once those questions are answered they're out the door and they're just back on the street again where the sobering station usually has a time frame and they feed them they give them some sort of substance uh, to maybe counteract the intoxicants and uh, that has proven over the years very helpful since the closing of the of the sobering center um, we have not had that and we've seen more issues on the street including victimization or criminal activity from those people thank you uh, did you have any other comments I, I think it's individual you know each individual is is going to determine whether or not it's going to be can I go or are you going to take me, you know, or, or am I going to have to force you to go? And like it was des described, we're always looking for voluntary. We're, we're always going to push for the voluntary choice, but then at some point, um, if they are a, a threat to themselves or others, we have to take them somewhere. Obviously, sobering center is for nonviolent folks, and so there are times in my 25 years of experience where as we head towards that direction, uh, we have to make a pivot because they've now become violent and so now they they're gonna have to go to jail uh, Instead of that, but we have always tried to get them to go to the sobering side of the house first So your is your preference from a public safety is that uh, so even if You would want to be able to take them on a police hold. I would prefer they go voluntarily we'll spend time working on that, but if it's a point where we have to make that determination that they they can't stay there because they are a threat to themselves or others, then that's when we enact uh, community caretaking. Okay. And once they've come before us um, and have become the subject of so many police calls, they're at a point where, generally speaking, they recognize that they need some kind of a break too, and a sobering center is. Um, a better option they realize that a sobering center is a better option for them than jail or the hospital right um, I mean I guess you know if this is very nuanced but I mean obviously you know when I talk to Central City Concern uh, and it sounds like you all have had the experience or you knew what it was like when they had their sobering center uh, as we all know they closed their sobering center and so obviously I think that there are huge lessons when I'm guessing you know one of our major providers uh, who could potentially provide this service quit doing it and what were the the challenges that you all saw that could inform how we would go forward can you define your question just a little bit the, the challenges we're having or the challenges that they were having of why they closed well I, I think it's both is that I mean if you look at like unity center you know, we had this a certain idea, and I think it, it kind of turned into a 24-7 drop-off site, but they weren't equipped or prepared to handle that level of acuity. So I'm just trying to figure out what that looks like. And yeah, so, it, yeah. Um, and I'm gonna let you answer, but I also, um, just Commissioner Stegman wanted to also share that um, we have already engaged Central City Concern because um, your question is exactly, yes. it was my first thought of like, let's take the lessons learned about why it didn't work um, as okay. we approach this work. So from their perspective, we very much will wrap in um, from the provider's perspective why um, they ended up closing it. Um, and so just wanted you know that that is going to be like very, like, the front end okay. of, the, of the process, but I'll let you respond from the 
yeah. sure, from, law from, enforcement's from, perspective. I, I mean, anecdotally, and I, I won't speak for them of why they closed, but, but where we saw things was we went from a time of largely intoxicated due to alcohol to different drugs that were now in the system that take different treatment processes to be able to deal with, and they weren't designed for that at that point in time. And so now we're left with uh, a more difficult situation to work through, I guess would be the best way to describe that. Okay, yeah, no, I appreciate that. And Commissioner Stegman, I'm just gonna yep. um, move on to Commissioner Myron at this point, just because we wanna make sure that we have enough time for. I'm not gonna have any questions. You're not so gonna, okay, okay. Do okay. you have a quick? Um, uh, do you have ideas about location? Like, do we think it's better to have it close to jails or, or any thoughts about location? I think we need a location. But do you, <laughs> but where? The million dollar question is, who would like to have this sobering center in, in Sure. I think uh, considering where uh, people would be released is is something to think about too. You know, if, if it were far from other services or far from um, kind of the center, um, that just could be risky for the people that are being released from the facility. Okay. All right. Thank you, Commissioner Myron. Thank you so much. Um, I. Really appreciate all of your um, your comments and uh, sharing your experiences. Um, they all, they resonate with me as I shared with you earlier. Um, uh, I I'm an ER doctor. I see people when they're dropped off in crisis in the emergency department, or not necessarily in crisis, but intoxicated. Um, and I see them on the streets um, as a volunteer with Portland Street Medicine, and. Uh, I appreciated your um, your comments, Captain Rasmussen, when Commissioner Stegman asked the question about uh, you know voluntariness. Um, I think there's a lot that comes up with with that that's that comes up with that word, and um, and what you said resonates exactly with what I've seen, with why I understand, and what I, I've spoken with many many um, providers is that most people actually end up voluntarily going. Um, and so the, the voluntary question becomes somewhat moot in, in just kind of the sobering situation. Um, obviously, there's a lot of complexity, so involuntary raises its head a lot. Um, and in the emergency departments, just to clarify, um, we have two options for holding people. One is, if it's for mental illness, we can hold people for up to 72 hours if they're an imminent danger to themselves or others. Imminent has been <laughs> has been interpreted to basically be immediate, and there has to be a plan. It, it is um, a definition we need to be actively uh, changing. It's a state issue. We can hold people for 48 hours for acute intoxication. And so we do not have to let anyone go. We um, have the authority to hold for 48 hours if we suspect someone is acutely intoxicated. And so um, the question is more, is the ER the right place for the person? And is our job is to um, address instability emergency conditions. Um, and so often if someone is not in acute crisis and unstable in some way, 
even if they're intoxicated, you know, we're not going to hold them for 48 hours because the ER just isn't the place and we have a lot of emergencies to deal with. So we don't just send people out willy-nilly, but it's just not the right place, which is exactly why we need the alternative place for people to go. And I just love the comment about location. It's like, we need one. Um, so thanks. So much. Thank you um, um, all very much, like I said, for your, your time. I think um, I, one of the things that I know, we talked about the ER, right? Like they can, they can five minutes to 30 minutes, right? Or um, when you're having, and so they can be right back out on the street. And I think that when we're looking at, and this will be something that I'll you know, bring up as we're having our conversation as the board, but, but sobering allows kind of a pause for a certain amount of time, right? 23 hours, is that right for the, for the community care hold that you were talking about, is that about right? I don't, off the top of my head, I don't know the exact time that, that they're held. I, I know that our former sobering center was kind of a four hour minimum. Yeah. And that gave them the time to uh, kind of reset, like you said, to take that pause. Um, and that's what on the mental health side we're looking for is to just to get a better evaluation uh, to determine where we're at with that. And I apologize if, uh, uh, if I implied that the hospitals were just getting rid of them. That's not the case at all. It's just we bring them there and it's an evaluation that they make. We trust their evaluation. We understand it, but everyone's hands are kind of tied on, on how to help this population and these people going through it. Um, so community caretaking, well, it, it's kind of immediate. It has to be immediate for us too. Under community caretaking, they've got to present currently harm to self or others. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't say, well, they might in five minutes. It's right there, right now, what we're doing. Um, yeah, and I know that's a high bar. I know a lot of times. So I think I appreciate the um, focus on trying to make it as voluntary as possible, both for, I, I think, for them, for you, you know, for, our, for us as a community. So, um, all right, thank you for clarifying that a little bit. Appreciate all of that. And now we are, I think, able to move into the conversation as a board. So, yeah, I, I, I didn't have any questions, so I'm sure I'll have a lot of chance for opportunity for questions. But I, one thing I want to really thank you for is like focusing on the human aspect of it. Um, I mean, too often um, that's not part of the conversation. So I just want you to, to, to thank you for focusing on that piece of it because um, I think all of us, no matter what is happening with an individual, want there to be a better outcome for those people. So thanks. Yeah, so I appreciate. Yeah, so I appreciate um, Commissioner Brim Edwards. You setting a very um, a, a kind of clear um, set of expectations on what you wanted to see and what you wanted people to bring for this um, this discussion. I think that'll be really helpful. And so, Commissioner Ryan, we can start with you. And we have about twenty six minutes. I will say that. So um, we'll keep an eye. Five minutes for everybody. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there'll be lots of other opportunities if people want to give more feedback. <laughs> Um, I, I have com just comments based on what you've raised and um, just cut me off. If, okay. Let's uh, go over. Um, so um, we all know we need a behavioral health system with a full continuum of services and as a local mental health authority, it's the county's responsibility to provide the continuum. Um, given that we don't have that continuum right now, um, what are we going to do? in the crisis we find ourselves in with regard to overdose and death from substance use. is This is how I'm sort of framing these questions and thinking about it. As we strive to create the continuum and prioritize investments over time, 
we need to urgently build out a couple of crucial elements that will have the biggest bang for our buck in our system. And one of those key components is a sobering center. I um, appreciate your comments, Chair, in framing the conversation as well, and the opportunity for policymakers charged with investing our public money um, to offer all of our perspectives, to ask questions, because um, it is so important to have that the understanding and the input and um, frame the issues from from the public's perspective and from the policymakers' perspective. Um, I'm offering perspectives wearing hats both as a policymaker and a subject matter expert, and these are both informed by my experience working on the front line with people we are serving. So that is always my focus, and as partners of um, first responders who also need to be our focus here. Um, the, I feel like the first thing, and you alluded to this, um, Commissioner Brim Edwards was clarifying definitions, so we're all speaking the same language. And too often I hear the term sobering center, detox, withdrawal management, stabilization, respite, et cetera, used interchangeably. Um, but they all mean different things, except withdrawal management and detox do mean the same thing. Um, so we need to be on the same page when we're talking about this stuff, whether or not we're using the terms, just so we are rowing in the same direction. Um, and we need to identify the specific problem we are trying to, to solve. Um, for me, the problem statement we are addressing with a sobering center is about individual and public safety needs in the context of public intoxication. The goal of a sobering center isn't to solve behavioral health issues. It is not even to get people into treatment. It is its most basic sense is basic sense used is it can divert people from being taken to ERs or jails and keep them safe. We need this urgently. Um, it can be, because we need so much, it can be tempting to try to make this into everything and throw in the kitchen sink, a receiving, stabilization, triage, detox, et cetera, station. We can build this out, but right now we don't have the luxury of time. So what can we do urgently to change our system here and now? I highly recommend we limit our scope, we build out a plan for a sobering facility of 50-ish beds that can be expanded at a later date into a receiving triage stabilization center. It should be a 24-7 drop-off center. People will generally stay less than 24 hours, but occasionally it can be longer. It's not triage, not stabilization, not emergent, not crisis, not detox. Um, there are a huge number of technical and clinical questions we actually don't need to get into right now. They do need to be answered during a process, but things like who are the clients, who is transporting, how will referrals be made, what are the inclusion exclusion criteria, how stable are they, what's the staffing model, risk, liability, all of that, we, we will have a chance to address, so I don't think we need to get into, into the weeds right now, but, um, agree in principle on a facility and what what that will be in our system. And I've explained where I feel that should be. Um, another, the other key thing is to understand and accept most clients will cycle in and out of the facility without seeking further treatment, maybe on their first, fifth, or 10th visit, and that's okay. 
we have to accept that, and that is a standard across sobering centers across the country. Um, because the goal is to keep them and the public out of harm's way while they're intoxicated. It's not solving behavioral health issues. And so different requirements come into play that we can then think about um, as we're designing the facility and getting into those weeds. But again, big picture, public safety. And um, again, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. I've mentioned and sent um, to you the information from the National Sobering Summit I attended that had jurisdictions from across the country, including many that some of you have visited um, and others, that talked about their best practices, their challenges, et cetera. We don't have to, like I said, reinvent that wheel. We can get um, presentations, I hope, from a few select groups that they can zoom in here we can ask some of those key questions, figure out how they address their challenges, see where there are parallels with Portland, and I would suggest Houston, D.C., and um, Los Angeles to start with. But, uh, and Andy Mendenhall and I have spoken, we, we agree. But whatever they are, we can ask those questions about information, cost, complexity, scope, risk, how they overcame that, how they work with law enforcement. But then, we will have an idea of what this could and should be. We can do that relatively quickly and then have a small, nimble group pencil out the plan. Um, and uh, there have been years worth of meetings and engagement, millions of dollars spent, spent experts, consumers, organizations, advocates, CCOs. We have reams of information. So no more big meetings figure this out, engage with who needs to be there, and um, communicate frequently, and that's it. Um, you might appreciate the, this phrase more than most, but as a, enough talk, we just do it, as they say. <laughs> If you can also send your comments, that would be great, in addition to I all the other materials that you, I know you have available to send us. Send these and others. <laughs> Commissioner Segment. Thank you, Chair. Um, so, Commissioner Brim Edwards, I don't you. I'm sure you're going to find out this information, but I guess I'm wondering how many. Do we know how many sobering beds uh, Hooper Sobering Center had, and do we know how many we need? And didn't we just fund some sobering beds? And so, what is how many beds did we fund, and what is the need, and what is the delta? I don't know if you have answers to those. You, you might. Um, so, my preference is for you to Just share answer. Your, share your questions. Okay, um, great. And okay, we're gonna put those. These You're gonna get them. All right, we'll get them back to you. Okay, um, this is really a, your chance to uh, lay out what we should be thinking about. I think okay, it's a very question. good, very good. Uh, you know, I think it would be a huge lost opportunity if we didn't address. Uh, the SUDS issue, the mental health, like uh, in some of the research that I've read, uh, and I don't know our law enforcement, some of our law enforcement folks here, uh, but I've read that, that they're frustrated too because there's a certain population that is just simply churned through. So that would be something I would want more data 
to like I mean so we're just going to create a place just to put somebody for 24 hours or 48 hours like and not provide them services or linkages like that doesn't make sense to me um, and so I do think we have to look at providing co-occurring treatment because as we all know people say okay well I have this person they're intoxicated but they have a mental health issue and so they might have to go down you know the the drug treatment path but then you know on the other side you have somebody you know everybody's blaming everybody else about well we can't treat them because it's a mental health issue we can't treat them because it's a suds issue so that's that would be a big question I would have um, also what percentage of people would need to be served based on alcohol intoxication versus meth or fentanyl or other types of drugs because obviously depending on uh, what you've taken uh, you're going to need different levels of care have questions about what we would provide would we provide food would we provide clothing um, the the number that a lot of talk about how long would someone be there uh, again we've already talked about I do have some concerns about the voluntary versus the involuntary, so I have lots of questions about that. Uh, and I do think the location. Uh, we're all familiar with NIMBYism. I'm not sure what neighborhood wants to have a sobering center uh, in their neighborhood. Uh, so that would be a concern. I think location is really, really critical. Uh, again, it goes back to what population are we, are we going to be serving the, the most chronic population A or a lower level. And the other thing is the whole continuum of care, which I think we, in the last SHS unanticipated money, we were able to kind of build out that system. But we've got to have a, a continuum. In my mind, it doesn't make sense to build a sobering center if you don't have places for people to go where there's a continuum of care and services. So I would want to look at that whole system. And I think, let's see, lastly is, I think that this has to be informed by clients in our system uh, who have, you know, and I, I, I appreciate our, our public safety officials. I appreciate our uh, medical health providers but we also have to have people that are actually in our systems who have lived experience uh, and have a human-centered approach. So uh, those are my questions and my comments. So thank you, Commissioner. Thank you. And I, I, I think we have Barb Snow is here. I, Barb, do you want to answer, do you have the information for any of Commissioner Stegman's questions around the capacity issues? And do you want to hold off? Maybe we should hold off because um, you asked a lot of questions and I think we want to capture all those and then that'll be part of the frame up and mm -hmm. also, when I share my final comments, I'll also share like how we're going to keep everybody update, updated. Okay. Okay. That's fine. That's I'm just fine. concerned about time because yes. we could dive right into we, the details. We only have 14 minutes. I, I appreciate that. So, okay. So I, um, so I, um, appreciates this chance to have this conversation. And I will say, as I am thinking about the needs around a sobering center, um, specifically, 
it is, I'm glad we were able to hear from, from some of our law enforcement partners today about their experience. I think also understanding the experience of, of CCC and why they needed to, to close their doors, what was the driving factor. I mean, I, I know personally through conversations um, that it was really about the level of complexity and acuity that they were seeing from people, that it wasn't just you know the drunk taint that we had seen in years past, right? It was, it was because people needed a higher level of medical um, intervention or a higher degree of, of kind of triaging where folks are, where folks have been um, as they were coming in there. And I think one of the things that um, I want to make sure is that whatever we are, whatever kind of facility that we are, we are having, um, that, it, that it is appropriate in terms of the medical needs of the folks and that there is a, um, and that there, that is a component of it. And, and so I would really encourage um, you, Commissioner Abram Edwards, as, as you're talking about this work, to, to really engage with our behavioral health folks because we do have conversations that are happening with OHA and some of the things that they are interested in, in seeing and funding, or hopefully funding, in our, in our community, including what they're calling, and this is where, Commissioner um, um, Myron, to your point of like all these different names, is a receiving center, right? So they're calling it a receiving center, which is basically, I think in their definition, a 23-hour hold where people can really come in um, and be triaged in terms of is it is it an issue of uh, a mental health issue or is it a is it an issue around intoxication and a substance that needs that that actually would need sobering um, and kind of and then triaging from that. So I, I want us to make sure that as we're talking about this, we're really incorporating some of the resources that we might have or partnership we might have with with other folks who are who have been working on this. And so I think our behavioral health folks are really gonna be an important resource for you as you're, as you're taking on this work. Um, the other, you know, and I, and I do think that part of this kind of a bigger conversation is the idea of, of, of holds and how, and, and what is um, requirement, because the other thing I've, I've heard is that, you know, for the people who, you know, for, for fentanyls, for some of the meth, like 24 hours is not enough to actually even, you know, so for somebody, um, to really make sure they can they can get get it out of their system in the right way. So we're like again like, is what is that pathway? And Commissioner Stegman talked about this a little bit. What is that pathway for um, to, for people into other parts of the system or, or higher levels of care that they may not be able to find or we may or a sobering center isn't actually built for right? And and that leads to the question that I had around, um, you know, what is the what is the capacity needed? And so this is going, you know, I think when, um, and I don't know the exact number, but when the, when the sobering center closed, I think when you're looking at the number of beds that are being funded and being brought online by Unity, by Providence, we actually might be at a, a plus number from where, from when the sobering center closed in 2019. Um, so I think that, that really begs the question, what is the need? You know, we know we're seeing higher levels of acuity so what is the need in terms of maybe also like quantity of, of sobering capacity, but also um, the need in terms of the level of care that people need, you know? Um, and, and then, um, yeah, and I, and I think that um, I also would just recommend if you haven't already engaged with MCSO, because I think, you know, we heard, um, from them that you know one of the options is to take people to jail. No, nobody, none, no one um, who you know who was here today said that that was a good option. But I think just engaging with MCO for both the perspective of 
the jail impacts and then but also then from the law enforcement impacts as I know that they're you know they do a lot of work in our county as well so that's just a suggestion that I would make but I think overall um, and then the other piece that I think is and again it's, it's a little bit outside the scope but as I thinking of like how all of these things are connected um, looking at our, our mobile crisis response and how things like Portland Street response project respond or something new and better that you know we want to have in terms of actually um, having a mobile crisis response to help either supplement this work or being engaged in, in identifying and, and offering services to people, how that will fit in, because I think that is a that is a um, an area of response that we um, that that still has potential that we haven't really um, you know dug into it into the to the ways that it can be. So great, yeah. great. Thank you. Um, everybody for both the, the questions, the recommendations, the places to look, um, your insights and perspectives. Um, so in the spirit of just equally contributing to the, the joint work, and I'm also looking forward to um, Commissioner Beeson when he joins us also, I'll, I'll have a separate one-on-one -on -one just to get his early stage thoughts, but him um, engaging in the process as well. Um, so from my perspective, I'm really looking at this um, as a public safety-centered approach that has the ability to connect individuals to healthcare and treatment services, as has been mentioned, um, as needed. But it's not that, but this uh, particular initiative is not first and foremost centered on those services. Um, uh, but there's, they're potentially being connects um, as needed. Um, and by leading with public safety, it allows us to frame the purpose of the work and to be clear um, that the need is not necessarily dependent on the ability to bill Medicaid or other insurance. Um, it's a dependent um, on us as a local uh, health authority in conjunction with the city to create a safer situation on the ground um, for those in need and for those in crisis. But not, and not just for the specific individuals, but also for the community ar around them. Um, I mean, it's interesting that we had the frequent users um, discussion today and then also um, this because I think um, it sounds like from the officers and also from conversations with Central City Concern that um, there, there is a frequency issue. And so um, just knowing that's, that's a component of it. Um, from my perspective, um, this would be a case where whether it's um, Project Respond, Portland Street Response, um, firefighters, um, local law enforcement, um, that they know exactly where to take people in crisis. Um, there shouldn't be situations, as I mentioned earlier, where uh, first responders are calling around trying to figure out where to where to take people who are in crisis who meet that um, level of they can't be left on the streets and the er and the jail is not the place for them to go um, and it needs to from my perspective the availability needs to be sort of 24 7 because um, we know um, things just don't neat, fit neatly into the eight to five um, box um, I also want to make sure that the sobering center is able to handle the less medically fragile situation that our old um, previously run center um, used to handle, um, and but that also but also that it provided an appropriate level of medical monitoring for those under the influence of some pretty incredibly dangerous um, drugs. I also, as part of this process, want to address any local or state laws and policies that prevent first responders from being able to do the right thing on the ground. Um, they're sort of, they're at the moment of truth when um, they need to know um, what to do in order to um, ensure that individual safety, but also the community safety. 
Um, it may require us to challenge historic norms and practices, and I would like, as part of this process, um, to identify those norms or practices um, or state laws um, that are preventing us from doing the right things. And I'm, of course, interested in um, the ongoing perspectives, the perspectives of the commissioners, because um, it's clear the status quo needs to be disrupted. Um, and lastly, I want a sobering center that has the ability to transition a person into further treatment options, um, but it is not solely evaluated not on that as a metric of success. Um, as Commissioner Myron mentioned, um, that the success could be measured in that person was safe during the time, period in time that they were sobering, or the community was safe during that period of time. Um, so for me, a metric of success, and I'm also interested in everybody else's definition of success, but my definition would be that we've reduced the number of people left abandoned each day on our streets, um, or um, that their repeat public safety, their, um, their, their behavior and what's happening and the, the state of their crisis is re resulting in repeat public safety calls and emergencies. Um, I should share that, um, because of some other issues. I was talking to the governor in the last couple of days and she's very interested in our work and also connecting um, to, to your point, um, the, the larger work happening with behavior health um, around um, this specific issue. And so um, we'll have a partner at the state um, already during the meeting. She's connected me to her, her staff person. Um, but also I see this, the city as a key partner, um, whether it's a funding partner or uh, a recipient of the services that are going to be provided, um, but very much on my view that, that they'll be part of the table. So this isn't just a, the county's got to solve this on its own. Um, and I want to just thank all of you for bringing your perspectives and I, um, and, and providing them early in the process. Um, I do want to provide a really rapid but transparent process in order to deliver um, to this board an actionable plan by March 1st so that we can evaluate it as part of um, the budget process. And the other thing I would say is, um, you know, ideas and processes and plans always um, are better when they're pressure tested. So um, I'm just going to state for the record, um, I I'm really um, would appreciate um, pressure testing um, with a in the, in the spirit of um, even better if um, that we follow this approach, um, because I do think that will get us a, a better outcome for all of us to consider um, this spring. Um, so with that, I'm going to pass it back to the chair, and thank you for the opportunity this morning to ha have this discussion um, at the front end. Thank you. Well, I thank you um, so much, Commissioner Broom Edwards. I want to thank your chief of staff, Eric Zimmer, and the rest of your staff for, for pulling this together and, and having us um, have such a productive conversation. I will just say the city was the funder of the old sobering center. So just to make sure that that was very clear, it is, and it is considered because it is considered a public safety response. Um, and, but I think that they're, especially now in the situation and the moment we're in with what we're seeing on our street, there are, there are very important health considerations and, um, that have to be, that have to be tied into it. So it is a complex issue, but just appreciate that. And, um, appreciate the continued work that we're going to be having on this. Um, so with that, we are um, done with our agenda for today. Uh, the board will reconvene at 9.30 on Thursday morning for our regularly scheduled board meeting. And with that, we are adjourned. <laughs>